0: Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast today with Jeannie Shen. Hi, Jeannie. How are you doing?
1: Hi, I'm doing great today. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be part of this podcast.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I spoke with uh, one of your colleagues uh, prior to this, and um, he basically said like, hey, if you're looking for people that are doing interesting things uh, at the intersection of you know, uh, health uh, and, and AI, you know, uh, Jeannie is definitely one that you should talk to So uh, you are uh, uh, an assistant professor of uh, pathology um, at the uh, Stanford University. Uh, So there's a lot of really interesting uh, things that you do um, within your research, uh, which are, let's say, well, topics as well, which I've uh, kind of, you know, um, came across not too, not too long ago, and I which I kind of uh, dove deeper in uh, within the past months, uh, which is uh, mm-hmm. on the side of um, gastrointestinal, gastrointestinal diseases and um, inflammatory bowel disease, these type of things. You know, there's, there's a couple of things that we're going to talk about today. But uh, as usual, we always start the same way in the sense that obviously, we would like to know who's kind of the person um, behind the microphone, who are we talking to um so it would be great if you could kind of give us an insight into where you're coming from uh, professionally you know what, what has kind of been the journey uh, up to now and uh, you know how, how did you end up where you are today and uh, why are you doing what are you t- doing today
1: so uh, as you know i'm a pathologist and a lot of times people uh, who don't understand medicine right, (laughs) think that all I do is autopsies because they probably watch a lot of those, uh, you know, forensic medical shows on TV. But actually pathologists do a lot more than uh, autopsies. And uh, in particular, I specialize in gastrointestinal diseases as you had mentioned. And a lot of what I do is I examine tissue specimens uh, or entire organs that are resected from patients and I determine in a lot of cases what the final diagnosis is. Uh, so I integrate a lot of the clinical information that I get, the clinical history, the laboratory information, uh, the radiology findings, and I combine that with my examination of these tissue specimens under the microscope to arrive at a final diagnosis for the patient. Which then the patient's uh, physician will then, uh, you know, communicate with the patient, and they they work together to come up with a management plan. So that's essentially what uh, an anatomic pathologist such as myself does. And my journey uh, that led me sort of to this career was that I'd always been very interested in science and particularly biology uh, as a child. And so uh, I went to undergraduate at Stanford and I majored in biology. And I always thought that I was going to you know, just do a PhD uh, and then perhaps get an MD, MBA and try to sort of combine biology and business. Uh, but I had an opportunity uh, during one of my senior years uh, as an undergraduate to volunteer at a, a free clinic, which is basically a, a clinic that provides basic healthcare services, like primary care to uh, the uninsured population. And that uh, free clinic experience, I think, just allowing me to directly interact with patients and be very intimately involved in their care uh, really became a turning point for me to go into medicine. Before I had you know, wanted to just get a PhD, go to graduate school, because I really liked the science aspect of things. And I think having that experience, just interacting directly with patients at the free clinic really uh, gave me a chance to experience the more human aspect. Of medicine, rather than just the science aspect. And so that was what prompted me to go to medical school. And so I went to medical school for four years. And during that time, I actually, uh, when I started out, I wanted to be a surgeon. <laughs> uh, I, I really liked the procedural aspect to it. And I liked the fact that surgeons were doing something to immediately uh, sort of make a difference in patients' lives, right? Uh, but, you know, in the end, uh, I had a chance to rotate on pathology, and I really like that. Uh, I like that a lot, and I think part of the reason was that it was, again, you know, a lot of pathologists do uh, research in academia, and pathology is at its heart. It's really the study of disease, and so I think that's the medical specialty that's very, uh, it's the closest to the basic scientific, science and um, to basic scientific discovery, and so that was what prompted me to become a pathologist, uh, and so I, you know, as a pathologist, there are a lot of different subspecialties that you can go into. And for me, I really uh, I like the gastrointestinal tract and the pancreas and the liver because it's a it's a subspecialty area that has a really good combination of both uh, neoplastic and non-neoplastic disease entities, uh, and so I like the variety. Uh, the fact that there are so many diseases uh, to, to study. So that was how, I, in a nutshell, I became a gastrointestinal pathologist. So, so how did I get involved in AI? It was essentially after I, uh, I came to Stanford, actually, in, back in 2017, uh, as an assistant professor of pathology. And, uh, you know, I had an opportunity, actually, to, uh, to meet um Matt Lundgren and Kurt Langlotz, who are uh, currently the co-directors of the Stanford uh, AI uh, sort of Amy Center. Uh, And they were the ones who introduced me to Andrew Ng, actually, who, um, as you know, is sort of a major figure in uh, computer science. And uh, that was how I got started essentially applying AI to uh, pathology. So uh, we we worked on actually an initial project, uh, which was trying to predict microsatellite instability in uh, colorectal cancer. And just to give you some backstory on that, so um, microsatellite instability, or MSI, it, um, it's a biomarker for several things. So uh, one is that it's used to determine whether or not a patient might have Lynch syndrome, uh, which is a hereditary cancer predisposition syndrome. Uh, but it's also become increasingly important recently because uh, we know that it might also help predict response to conventional chemotherapy, uh, as well as potential response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, and so our very first project with uh, Andrew's lab was actually trying to predict what the microsatellite status might be, uh, directly from these routine, uh, what are termed hematoxylin and eosin stain pathology slides of a patient's colorectal cancer so uh that was the how i sort of got my start in uh, pathology ai
0: yeah that is uh obviously super interesting and uh, you know <laughs> i like how you said like yeah that eventually uh you know started uh, uh when you came to stanford <laughs> you know with the ai part it's kind of like yeah funny because that's obviously the place where <laughs> you know you start to get a you get in touch with these type of things but um you know, let's, let's, uh, let's say before we dive into all this, um, you know, the, the, the deep learning aspect, um, which also kind of uh, is is obviously something that you have been going deeper into uh, and and making part of your research is, you know, kind of for the, uh, for the, for the people that are obviously, obviously not uh, experts within the GI space, you know, um, it it is actually very interesting. So uh, if if one kind of dives deeper, deeper into this, but um, maybe kind of as a, as a, you know, GI 101 kind of thing, you know, the, the most important aspect to, uh, to know about it. Why, why, why is the gastrointestinal um, space or kind of as uh, also part uh, as part of, uh, of the human body, or um, wh- why is it such a, such an interesting and important space as well from a, from a uh, human health perspective?
1: Certainly. So uh, I think number one is just pure uh, surface area, right? And variety of organs that's covered. So GI pathology, includes uh, the study of everything from your esophagus uh, through the stomach, uh, small intestine, uh, colon, and rectum. Uh, so that's what we term the tubal GI tract because it's a it's one long tube, right? Uh, oh and the anus is also included as well. Uh, so that's the tubal GI tract, but we also study uh, the liver actually as well as the uh, the pancreas and the biliary tract. So I think that's why, uh, it's part of the reason why GI pathology is so important because it covers so many organs. And so there are so many diseases, right, from uh, let's say uh, acid reflux, for example, which is extremely common. Uh, to, you know, colorectal cancer, to esophageal cancer. So it covers a wide variety, uh, not only of organs, but also types of diseases. So we like to think about disease in two general categories. There's a sort of oncologic disease, right, which has to do with cancer developing in that organ. Uh, And then on the other side, there's medical disease. And of course, all disease is medical. But when we uh, use the terminology medical disease, we're referring specifically uh, to non-cancer or non-neoplastic diseases, so I think that's why uh, that's why GI covers so many things and you know is kind of hot right now because uh, a lot of organs are covered, but also a lot of uh, very common diseases.
0: Yeah, and I, I think uh, you know uh, one that 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 you know was struck me a lot was um, uh, the inflammatory bowel disease. Right, so so kind of um, something that affects really a lot of people, and where we don't really have kind of like a clue yet, right? In in terms right. of what really the uh, w- w- what is it that we're really trying to treat, and 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 that is and that is su- super super interesting. So maybe maybe it would be great if you could share a little bit a little bit about, about that as well.
1: Sure. So I think. Uh, Well, I actually, so full disclosure, I don't do any uh, AI work in IBD, uh, but that being said, it is one of my clinical and uh, non-AI research interests, and I think the status right now is that, as you had mentioned, uh, we still don't really know what causes IBD, right? There are a lot of associations, so we know that there's probably a genetic component Uh, And that's based on, you know, both uh, genome-wide association analysis studies as well as more targeted uh, molecular studies. Uh, But there's also definitely a very strong environmental component. And I think, uh, you know, the microbiome uh, is especially important in the case of IBD. And we're certainly learning a lot more about that right now. Uh, And then uh, the last component, yeah, I think it's it's environment. Genetics probably, hmm. uh, and perhaps some some other things that uh, we're not entirely sure about, like uh, you know maybe some slight racial and ethnic predilection. Although uh, you, it used to be that you know many years ago we thought that IBD was predominantly affecting certain uh, let's say Caucasian populations, or at least it was more common, right? For example, in Northern Europe. But now yeah. we're finding that. Uh, there are more and more cases for example being discovered in asia uh, and other parts of the world and i think some of that definitely has to do with uh modern diets right and the so-called westernization of diets Yeah.
0: yeah yeah absolutely so like i also thought about this like um for some time and um so if if you think about it right so yeah genetics might be a might be a thing but I think environment has such like such a such a big impact, or it could potentially have like uh, probably the majority of the impact on it, especially because environment has has obviously you know a direct impact on on, on our diet and and uh, you know in terms of like the, the air, the water, everything, right? So I mean it has a, and, and it has a, it has an impact in in the sense of like also how people you know on on the physical appearance of people right? So, like, th- that's mm-hmm. how, how strong it is. And, 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 and that's why, like, uh, I, I think it obviously also has a, has a, has a big effect on, on, on kind of, uh, you know, um, certain diseases or, or basically how people process certain foods, right? What I, what I find interesting is hmm, to, to see if, like, somebody, for example, grows up in a certain place that uh, has not yet been conquered by the westernization <laughs> of, uh, of, of, let's say, the, the local foods, Right. And then and then moves and then moves to a completely different place, let's say, let's say to a Western country or whatever. Right. Uh, And then basically those are often the cases where you can see like, okay, um, you know, does does the person maybe react differently to the food there? especially obviously it's very difficult to study because how how are you supposed to collect the data somebody uh, lived in place x for 20 years or so in in his first uh, first 20 years of his life and then moves to place y where he lives another 30 years or 40 years how how does the body change due to that right right? so how how do the how how does the how does the biological kind of environment of the of the person change so I, i think that's that is super interesting, but it's super hard to study, right? And and I get I guess we're gonna get to this as, as well now when we, when we start to talk about AI, right? Is within these parts, right? Or within within this uh, field of um, GI, right? Uh, which uh, oftentimes, is, as you said, right, is very um, is it, is it's obviously very clinically uh, clinical focused. It is difficult to get the large amounts of data that one is obviously used to from let's say you know applying deep learning for example within a um you know social media contacts or e-commerce contacts or whatever else right mm-hmm. so um that that's that's where where i kind of would like to you know make the link towards um you know your deep learning research so you said that uh, that whole started basically when you got introduced to andrew ang what basically triggered you to then, you know, go and say like, Hey, you know, let's looking at the opportunities that we can, that we can have with uh, applying deep learning.
1: Absolutely. I think it was actually frustration with my workload (laughs) to be completely (laughs) Frank. Uh, there were a lot of tasks at the time, you know, tedious manual tasks that I was doing as a pathologist. And it made me think, well, wouldn't it be great if instead of me spending, let's say 10 minutes trying to evaluate this one feature uh, in a case, wouldn't it be great if a computer could do that for me? And I had been following the literature for a while, so I knew that uh, there had been other attempts, right? For example, uh, if you look at the path literature, some very common applications might be counting uh, mitotic figures in a tumor Uh, which is used for tumor grading in some instances, or accounting the proliferative index in certain other tumor types, also used for grading. Uh, So, Or identifying, let's say, lymphovascular invasion, uh, which will then impact how the patient is managed downstream. And all of these tasks take a lot of time, actually. I, I would say when I'm evaluating, for example, a cancer resection specimen, I just have to look at all of these things and I have to score them. And it takes me a lot longer uh, than I would like. So that was my first motivation actually for thinking about uh, how AI might be able to help me with these routine tasks. Uh, then the other type of task that uh, is related to the first project that we worked on with Andrew was you know, can, we, can we better predict outcomes, for example, or responses to treatment in cancer patients. Uh, And so that was how the MSI project sort of came about because we do have good, uh, we have a good biomarker test, several actually for determining the MSI status. Uh, So there's immunohistochemistry which is where we uh, have some special immunostains that target particular proteins that are expressed by the tumor. Uh, and these are read by pathologists but the thing is uh, this test is it's expensive right and it adds some turnaround time to the diagnosis uh, so for example i would order the same today and then the slides would come out tomorrow so i wouldn't necessarily be able to finalize a case today i'd have to wait until the slides come out tomorrow and then finalize it then um, but also i think in this case it was just out of i think academic curiosity right i thought Well, wouldn't it be great if we could just predict directly from the routine uh, H&E stained images of the cancer, whether or not uh, this patient was going to be microsatellite, unstable or stable, because that would certainly just eliminate an entire uh, additional step in the workflow. We wouldn't need to do these expensive immunostains, and we wouldn't need to wait another day for the results. So that uh, that was the impetus, I think, for for sort of getting involved in uh, the very first project that we did. So I think that was sort of a roundabout way of summarizing that. I think uh, from the standpoint of pathology and AI, there are two major buckets, right? That all of these research applications fall into. Uh, One is just uh, what I like to refer to as first-generation histomorphology, which is AI is helping pathologists perform routine tasks that they already perform pretty well. Uh, but they just help you do it in either a more accurate way or a more cost or time efficient manner. Uh, And then the other category uh, that I like to put these tasks into is uh, sort of what I would refer to as next generation histomorphology. And this is, I think the more exciting area. Uh, And this is actually where AI can help uh, pathologists do things that they weren't able to do before. Uh, so things like uh, predicting, for example, how long the patient is going to survive after their surgery or whether or not their cancer is going to recur or what particular uh, drugs their, their cancer might respond to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's, um, I guess, the, the second, second one is obviously, uh, you know, that one where also most of the innovation is probably going to lie you know, taking into consideration that obviously, let's say, you know, kind of with the first category, uh, falling into this typical kind of, you know, efficiency gaining, you know, kind of supporting task where it's, you know, about classifying certain categories, etc. You know, I, m- I mentioned quickly, and and this is also, you know, something that we talked uh, with uh, the several people that we had on the show yet, um, that are working within the Bio slash kind of health space, right? Is for uh, a lot of uh, a lot of these topics, right? Getting the right data and especially, let's say, within a, within the right right amounts is uh, sometimes a little bit difficult, especially when when it's about the clinical context. So, how would you kind of like um, describe that? Kind of was that a challenge that you guys ran into uh, with some of the work yet, or um, how how would you how would you kind of comment on this?
1: Oh, absolutely, it's a huge challenge. It's huge. Uh, I think because we're, we're, we're dealing with several barriers, right? Just under the category of data. So there's the uh, digitization barrier. That's number one. I think that is still a major barrier right now. And by that, I mean that most uh, data, if you will, right? is still in the form of glass pathology slides. Uh, it's not in the form of whole slide images. And if it's not in whole slide image format, we can't do anything with it, right? From an AI standpoint. The problem is that, uh, you know, short of, I think, major uh, for-profit laboratory chains and major academic centers, most of uh, pathology is not digital yet. So, and that's because it obviously, uh, scanners are expensive, right? But also uh, the entire workflow in a pathology lab needs to be revolutionized in order for uh, a pathology lab to go digital. And so that's, that's a lot of work. And I think right now, uh, most, most labs do not see uh, what the immediate return on investment is. So yeah. when they look at the cost to benefit ratio, right, it, it's just way more expensive for them to digitize at this point in time uh, than it is for them you know, not to digitize. So they don't see that cost to benefit ratio as being beneficial right now. Um, so the digitization barrier, that's number one right now. I think eventually it will be overcome, but uh, it's still a major problem right now. Um, so then some other data related challenges that we've run into. Uh, definitely, I think proprietary whole slide image formats uh, and also whole slide image annotation platforms are a challenge right now. Uh, and even though there is a, there's a movement toward DICOM uh, standards for whole slide images, right? So DICOM is the um, digital imaging and communications and medicine standard uh, it's, it's not been widely adopted. So that's another problem. Uh, for example, when you compare us to radiology, right? Radiology has adopted DICOM standards, but pathology, uh, it's moving in that direction. It's not there yet. It's very early stage. Uh, so that's a problem, uh, because when you have these different, uh, whole slide image formats, right? Most of them being proprietary, uh, you can only train a model on one type of, uh, whole slide image format at a time. So that's a problem. Uh, then next you have data storage and transfer issues. So whole slide images take up a ton of storage space, right? Uh, each, each image is somewhere, you know, between I would say 500 megabytes to four gigabytes. And that's only one image. So it's, it, it's very expensive to, uh, to store this data. And it also presents a problem when you're trying to transfer them. Uh, for example, if you have Uh, multi-institutional collaborations, right? Not to mention that we have to deal with patient privacy uh, protection regulations. So that creates a barrier to data sharing. Um, And then lastly, the need for reliable ground truth annotations, I think, is a huge challenge right now because it's really tedious and uh, quite time consuming to perform annotations, right? Um, And it also requires pathology expertise, which is expensive. Uh, and then in some cases, the gold standard label may be ambiguous, right? Uh, or subject to inter-observer variability. So data, uh, as you mentioned, is a huge challenge right now.
0: Hasn't there been any uh, approaches towards developing or innovating on the data type of, uh, you know, uh, part? So that's kind of, if, if you think about uh, genetics-related data, right? So, I mean, I, I, we had um, we had a, a genetics genetics professor as well on the podcast and uh, it, uh you know same same thing right so uh, obviously when when working working with algorithms and, and you have uh, lots of data especially obviously in the g- genetics part you have uh, you have already let's say very large uh, data sets with the uh, biobanks and um there they have been kind of approaching it on developing new data types in order to compress it basically right and and making it better to work with and and, then obviously also saving on storage or isn't that something that has been approached as well and let's say in the uh, ontology space
1: i think there have certainly been some steps in that direction uh for example i think step one is just studying right how much can you compress a whole slide image uh, before uh let's say the model fails to generalize
0: yeah exactly yeah
1: yeah but i think uh part of the challenge is that Pathology whole slide images, because we need them at several resolutions, so it needs to recapitulate what we see under a microscope, right? And a microscope has several objectives. So usually anything from a 4x magnification to 10x, 20x, and 40x. And so when we digitize the whole slide images, they, if you want them to be clinical grade, uh, they should be digitized at 40x. Uh, resolution And so uh, whole slide images, they're sort of, uh, you can think of them as a pyramidal uh, format, right? Where uh, one layer is, let's say it's 4X magnification, then another layer is 10X, another is 20X, and then another is 40X. So unfortunately, because we want to have that, uh, we want to have it recapitulate what we would see under a microscope, which means we would need to zoom in and out at all of those magnifications. The, uh, the image files, I think, must be a minimum size, right? Otherwise, it's just, uh, it doesn't have the information that we need to fully make a diagnosis. So I, I'm not sure now how how small we can compress these files right now uh, and still retain all of that diagnostic information, uh, not just for the human-eyed interpret, but also for machine learning algorithms to interpret.
0: So, uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about as well, because I know that you have been kind of, uh, you know, on your research side of things, but also uh, uh, have been personally involved with working with startups. You know, that's obviously one of the questions, right? So if, if, if the barrier to entry and uh, the barrier for innovation is a little bit, let's say, you know, higher than, uh, than for, let's say maybe other, other parts, um, what, are, what are some examples that, that you have seen uh, from startups approaching this, the pathology, um, or or let's say GI, utilizing AI or not, but let's say more or less coming from within an innovative approach to to build companies around that.
1: Well, uh, so I should mention that uh, some of my uh, some of my agreements are under non-disclosures, so so I can't unfortunately tell you exactly what we're working on. Uh, so I think instead I'll comment on what I've seen from other startups, perhaps not the ones that uh, that I'm directly working with. So I've observed that uh, again, right? Most of the uh, the tasks that are approached by these startups uh, are they fall into one of those two categories that I talked about. So either um, first generation histomorphology or next generation. Uh, I think in terms of challenges, right? Obviously. Uh, once you have the data, you need to build a model that's generalizable and will work uh, on other institutions' data. And I think that actually getting the data is the most expensive and time-consuming part, I think, of any uh, AI endeavor, right? And so uh, one challenge that I've seen a lot is just, especially newer startups don't have enough funding right, to pursue these multi-institutional collaborations. And it's sort of, I think funding, you know, we think about, well, we think it shouldn't be that important, but it actually is. And that's because in order for your academic partners to have buy-in in in a project, you have to give them something in return, right? Uh, I mean, if you think about medicine, well, it shouldn't really be that way. in an ideal world, we would all be doing things for free, right? Just for the, let's say, the joy of academic discovery or the joy of collaboration. But the problem is that people are really busy. And so, speaking for myself, uh, you know, I'm I'm at Stanford. Uh, my job includes, you know, both clinical service and research and teaching. And unfortunately, uh, if a startup approaches me and wants to work together, well, if unless it's going to be a limited amount of work on my part, I always ask for uh, some research support, right? So some salary support. Uh, And that's because without that, I can't buy time off of uh, my other duties, right? right? For example, clinical service, to have time to work on these collaborations. And so I think that's been a challenge in some cases when I'm discussing potential collaborations with startups in particular, because if they don't have enough money, right, to buy my time, then unfortunately I can't, I just don't have time in my schedule to work with them. So it's really kind of unfortunate. Uh, I wish things were better in that regard, but, but that's how things work right now. You know, so, so whoever has the most money startup wise and can buy the time of experts are the ones who are going to have an advantage, so to speak?
0: Yeah, don't you think that mm, in most cases that let's say for these you know sort of uh, sort of say you know advanced medical fields that experts need to be part of part of the founders uh, themselves, you know kind of let that that we see more or less startups uh, you know coming out of academia, um, you know obviously there's a bunch of uh, examples at Stanford. A lot of uh, of your colleagues obviously are involved in, in, in startups, but also maybe have, have you know, found this, uh, startups. But don't you think that the way to kind of move things forward in a faster fashion?
1: Yes, I, I completely agree. And I think if you're not going to have someone who actually works directly in that specialty uh, found or co-found a startup, you should at a minimum have enough of those people uh, as your advisors, right? to yeah. make sure that uh, the product that you're designing actually meets a true clinical need. Uh, I see this a lot, actually, not necessarily in startups, but just in research in general, that a lot of research, uh, people are starting with the hammer, so to speak, right? So I built a hammer, which is my machine learning model or a class of models. And now I'm looking for nails to, uh, to sort of hit with that hammer. And in fact, what they should be doing is actually looking at okay, what are the nails that I need to design my hammer for? I think not uh, identifying early on a true clinical need and investigating that need thoroughly before proceeding with the model development is a, a big mistake that I still see happening.
0: Hey, Jeannie, thanks a lot for, for, you know, giving us this insight into into this, uh, into your research, you know, into the field of pathology and, and kind of the work that involves uh, uh, deep learning. It was, it was really a pleasure having in the show and, and interesting to get more insights into into this entire field. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.